Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we, we thank you this morning that, God, you are the Lord over the storm. That, God, that there is nothing in this world that you cannot control, Lord, that you cannot stop. And so, Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would come and give us peace to our hearts this morning as they break for the community in Charleston, South Carolina. God, we lift those congregations to you. Lord, help us now to focus on your word, Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask you now to, to guide me as the preacher of your word, that God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. But if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them to Ephesians chapter 2. As many of you know, this summer we're in a uh, series of sermons from Ephesians. Hopefully we'll cover the entire book. And so this morning we begin in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 that Janie Miller read. That's on page uh, 976 of the Pew Bible in front of you if, uh, if you need a text this morning to look at. And you probably will need a text because typically um, I, I've taught, had some folks ask me, they said, you preach a tad differently Yes, you preach a tad differently than other people do. And it's, yes, I was, I was trained as a Baptist pastor. I was trained as a Baptist preacher. And so I typically, and that'll be kind of evident here today, um, I actually uh, try to exposit God's word. And so I want you to be able to go home and look at not just what I say, but to be able to open up your scriptures again and say, hey, I can see what, what he was talking about this morning. And so that's, that's why we're going to go chapter and verse this summer through Ephesians. Well, essentially, I don't really have an introduction for you this morning, but I do want to just tell you that there are really, straight from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, that there really are three statements of facts about Christians this morning. Anybody who's here this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've been baptized and you're following Christ, there are three facts from this uh, text that are going to talk about three things about you. It's going to talk about your past. It's going to talk about what it is to live in the present and what it means to live into the future as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. And so there's essentially three things that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, we're going to look at what we were before Christ came in our life. Number two, we're going to look at what we are now in Christ. And then number three, we're going to look at what we will be or what we are to currently be doing now as we are followers of Christ. And so if you're following along this morning, um, number one, point number one, we begin, what are we or what were we before Christ? What were we before Christ? We begin with the past. What were we before Christ? That's in verses one through three. Please read with me, beginning with verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, Paul, for a while now in chapter one, has been telling us about our new identity in Christ. If you've been here the past couple weeks, you may remember that. In chapter 1, we looked at the, our identity of what it means to, to be in Christ. That we're chosen, we're redeemed, we're blessed, we're all these things. 
And then last week, we looked at the gifts that God has given us as his redeemed children, as his treasured possession. All those things were in chapter 1. But now, in chapter 2, Paul's going to change gears. He's going to switch the direction. Because in these three verses we just read, they describe who we were before Christ came into our lives. Who we were in the past. But in order to understand verses 1 through 3 with clarity, there are three words and three concepts we need to unpack. First of all, the three words. The first word you look at, or if you're reading through Ephesians 2, 1, you see is the word dead. Now, what does the word dead mean? The word mean dead means dead, right? But specifically in this context, it really means that someone is, like, is dead like a walking corpse, that they appear alive on the outside, but spiritually and specifically, they are dead in the sense of on the inside of having no moral or spiritual life on the inside. There's also the word, so that's dead. What about the word trespasses? What are those? Is that like the no trespassing sign that we have back here on the playground um, until we get the fence up? Hopefully, Lord willing, this week. <laughs> but is that is what trespasses in the Bible the same thing? Not exactly. Because, see, trespasses in the biblical sense means that uh, it means like one's taking a false step in life, a bad path in life, a false path in life. A trespass is a step you take that really transgresses the will of God and his loving boundaries. So that's what it means. That's what a trespass is. Well, also there's the word sin. And so sin right here is not just a sinful act. Rather, when dead, the word dead, and trespasses and sins are tied together... It really describes a constant state that is, integral, that is an integral element of someone's being and nature. All this happened because of the fall. We are dead in trespasses and in sins because of the fall. Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 2 where Adam and Eve willingly chose to disobey God, that action has affected all of creation and infected all of mankind. People are not dead in sin because necessarily they commit sinful acts. They are dead, they are, or excuse me, they are in sin because they are born sinful by nature. For instance, one does not become a thief. A thief steals because he's already a thief. We do not become adulterers. We commit adultery because we are already adulterers in our hearts. Jesus makes this type of thing, or makes this theology very, very plain in, Ma in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We are what we are. We do what we do because, and that because of what is on the inside of us. It's out what comes out of our heart. Friends, we do not become sinners. Our very nature prior to Christ is that of a sinner. And it's why we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, so that's three words. We have three concepts in this passage, or the first couple verses we need to unpack. First, Paul says in verse 2, he says, You at one time walked this way, following the course of the world. Following the course of the world. Well, what does it mean to walk following the course of the world? Well, friends, in our particular setting, in our culture today, there are predominantly three elements at work in our world. We have humanism, we have materialism, and we have illicit sex that are very alive and well today. Humanism, what is that? Well, that's best illustrated by Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher in 400 BC, who's, who's famous for the quote that man, get this, man is the measure of all things, of things which are, that they are, and of things which are not, that they are not. 
Humanism assumes man is the center of the world and that man is the standard and final authority of all things. All right, materialism, I mentioned that. What is materialism? Materialism is material, was when material possessions, financial possessions, and physical things like comfort and ease are the good life. Those are the things that are taking prominence in our life. We oftentimes see this, that the person with the most wins. We oftentimes see this in a world that defines people as in winners and losers. That's what materialism is. Well, what about sexual perversion? Well, friends, whereas the Bible never paints sex outside the marital bonds between a woman and a man favorably, sexual vice is used in this culture to allure, entice, dominate, define, and redefine our thinking, our values, and our virtues today. To be following the world is to be chasing after these things. To be chasing after these things, and they're prominent in our minds, such as humanism, materialism, and sex. Such as the course of the world. Well, if you think I'm overreacting, and it's just the Baptist coming out in me, listen. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll take you to lunch this week. Let's go to one of those places that has the TVs encircling the whole place. And let's watch those TVs for about an hour looking for appeals and persuasion and marketing techniques using the values of self-centered humanism, materialism, and sex, if not illicit sex. Let's sit there and look at those things and then tell me that if I'm not right, tell me that I'm not right. Tell you what, if it's less than 50%, I'll buy you lunch. How about that? No takers. All right. Secondly, though, Paul says in verse 2, he says, we're following the prince. We were following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the air? That's none other than Satan. And whether we're conscious of it or not, before Christ comes into our life, Satan is the one we are following. Now, friends, if you're thinking of the devil, like kind of you see around Halloween time and those sorts of things, of a, you know, some red guy you know, with a pointed tail and a pitchfork that's walking around sticking people, that's not Satan. Satan, rather, is the influencer, the evil influencer. He's the deceival, deceiver. He's the great liar that leads people to doubt what God has said. He gets people to disbelieve God's goodness. He goes after people to get them to disobey God. We find that in Genesis 2, at the, fall, at the temptation of Adam and Eve, and also in Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus. He's the influencer, the deceiver, the great liar, trying to get his, God's people, or anyone really actually, to disbelieve what God has said, disbelieve his goodness, and disobey him altogether. But then Paul keeps going on in this verse. He says, the, 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 with this phrase, he says, currently at work in the sons of disobedience. Disobedience here describes those who are opposed to God. Sons and daughters of disobedience, those are people who have no regard for God, no regard for his son or his word or his people. And then Paul says, we were like them. We were like them. How were we like them before we came to Christ? Well, that's answered in the third concept of what Paul says. He says, we lived, in verse one, or excuse me, down in, I believe it's in verse two, he says, we lived according to the passions of our flesh, and carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Desires of the body and mind refer to the irregular or violent desires that are impure inside of us, like lust, like hatred, like greed, pride, envy. Those are all evil desires that run contrary to what God defines as good, true, and what is beautiful. 
Augustine called them inordinate, or meaning excessively large desires. All right? Then Paul summarizes these three words that just we went over, and these three concepts when he says, you were by nature children of wrath. You were by nature children of wrath. Listen, friends, that is our status. That is the status of anyone else prior to knowing Christ and being in a relationship with Jesus. To be sons and daughters of Adam and Eve only and to be a product of the fall of mankind and creation that's constantly disting itself from God is to be subject to God's judgment and condemnation. Children of wrath. Friends, I know that's not popular to say today. I know that's not popular to preach There may be better ways of communicating this. I really don't know. But friends, I love you enough this morning to just shoot straight with you and tell you what the text says, what is true of God, and what is true of us. It's a jagged pill for us to swallow those first three verses because every single one of us in here today knows somebody or people who, though they don't know Christ, they're good people. But you know, consider something. They may be good people. But consider something. You know, an undertaker or a mortician is pretty good at making a dead person look alive or look not so dead. You know what I mean? We walk by the casket. Doesn't he or she look good? But we all know (laughs) they're really dead. It's the same thing for a person without Christ. Though outwardly they kind of look okay. Internally from what Paul says here. They are spiritually and morally dead without Christ. And I think that part of the reason this is so hard for many of us to accept and believe. Is because we deceive ourselves and are not honest about just how wicked we ourselves can be. And the rest of humanity can be at times. I mean, just this week within the Christian world, I was amazed. I was actually angered. I was hurt. I was appalled by what I saw some Christians saying, writing, posting out line about the murder and that whole situation in Charleston. And from the things that I heard said and read and sometimes, or, or heard said and read, sometimes I realized, you know what? We can be just as bigoted, just as full of hate as that guy. We just haven't acted on it yet. The thoughts are there. The capacity to be as evil is there. And friends, listen, Dylan Roof is an evil person, no doubt. I don't know about his status before Christ. I don't know what his situation is. I do pray that justice is served and the laws of South Carolina are carried out. But without Christ, listen, he's going to bust the gates of hell wide open just like anyone else who does not know Jesus Christ. They are all equally guilty in the grand scheme of things. Say, well, that's not fair, Father Keith. I'm not as bad as he or she or whomever. I'm not as bad as I could be. The person that I'm talking about or I'm thinking about, you know, who's a pretty good moral person, you know, they're not as bad as others. Doesn't that count something with God? Listen, there are degrees of dead, or just as there are, listen, just as there are degrees of dead, there are also degrees of spiritual death and evil, Okay? Ponder with me here. Okay, we're going to lighten up just a little bit. Ponder with me the subject of roadkill. Okay? I mean, think about it. There's a lot of that right now out on the road if you're out and about. 
You know, when an animal first gets hit, roadkill's just dead, right? Just kind of laying there. Middle highway, it's not hurting anything. It's just laying there. Give them a day in this heat. Roadkill begins to swell up with the internal bacteria caused by death and decay inside. Give it another day. And roadkill, maybe or another day or so, the, the roadkill actually will burst from the internal pressures of bacteria and death. And when they burst, death and ooze come out along with maggots emitting a stench and a bacteria that's very harmful and dangerous to most healthy beings. Now go with me here just a second. Listen, friend, some people are just spiritually dead. They don't know Jesus. They're not really hurting anything, okay? They're just kind of there. But then there are some who are spiritually and morally dead. They're, they're kind of like that thing I was talking about a, a year later. They, they get kind of swollen. You know what I'm talking about? The pressure of life and the world or the things that they have experienced and the things that are going on cause them to really begin to kind of decay in their soul inside. And they begin to decay quickly internally. And there's things like hate and pain and rage and sin on the inside. That begins to kind of swell them up, but somehow it stays contained. And then there's some who just bust. And their sin and death spew out into the world, causing a stench, infection, and evil to otherwise healthy people. We saw this spiritual, moral death this week in our country, close up. And personal. It started with a spirit contrary to God in the form of hate, finalizing itself in a murderous barrage of bullets fired at innocent people in a prayer meeting. Beloved, what should our response be to both what Paul says about us before we came to Christ in the events of this past week in Charleston? Perhaps this one phrase, but for the grace of God, go I. But for the grace of God, go I. Meaning if it were not for God, if it were not for his Holy Spirit, if it were not for forces other than me, changing me, forming me, fashioning me, I could probably be like another Dylan Roof out there. But for the grace of God, I would be dead, stuck in my sin, stuck in our trespasses, living against God and under the condemnation of God. But for the grace of God, go I. Beloved, Paul sobers us this morning by telling us who we were before Christ. He tells us who we were in the past, before Christ came into our lives and changed us, we were dead. Now that I have thoroughly depressed everyone, okay, we're going to make a turn. Number two, Paul, secondly, Paul tells us what we are now in Christ. What we are now in Christ. Listen, God has made you alive. Read with me verses four through nine. Paul says, but God, but God being rich in mercy. Because 
the great love which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised, and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Or as it says in the Greek, the gift of God. Verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay. After realizing our condition prior to Christ... That but God at the beginning of verse 4 is a big but God. In fact, if you've got a pencil, I mean, I don't care if it's in a pew Bible, circle that. Why? Underline it in your Bible. Because, listen, friend, God by his very nature is kind. God by his very nature is loving and merciful. And despite you and I being dead in our sin against God, depraved in our nature, rebellious to the core, condemned by all the wrong we have done, the judgment of God because of what we have done against him. Listen, God in a deeper love and mercy and compassion for us, that greater, or excuse me, a greater love, mercy and compassion for us than we could ever imagine. He comes, initiates relationship with us by offering reconciliation, forgiveness and salvation by the work of Jesus on the cross, whose life and death satisfied the wrath of God. Verses four through five are summed up this way. I love how Tim Keller states this, something to this effect. Our sin is far worse than we could ever imagine, but the love that God has for us is far deeper than we can ever imagine. But God has not just saved us, okay? He has. He has not just saved us. He's gone beyond that. Listen to what verse, because verse 5 says that God made us alive together with Christ. Listen, it's the very opposite of being dead. Not just saved us. God has made us alive together with Christ. The very opposite of being dead. Think about this. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus in John 11, he comes staggering out of the tomb, but he's still wrapped into the grave linens. But Jesus says in John eleven forty four, 44, unbind him and let him go. Listen, friend, a person truly alive cannot be fully alive and free when they are bound by the trappings and wrappings of death. Friend, we were all like dead, like Lazarus. But God has made us alive and raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. And see, that's one of the things that Paul's been trying to get across in chapter 1. And now chapter 2 is this, that basically it's this, that what is true of Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, what is true of Jesus, that God raised him from the dead? Yeah, God's raised us from the dead as well. That God seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places? Now in verse 6, we see that God has also seated us with him in the heavenly places. Friend, that is where you sit this morning. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Listen, I cannot communicate how much of a game changer, how huge this truth is. It just, and oftentimes, it just goes unrealized in the Christian life. Why is that? 
God has made us alive. Why do we continuously live and don't live into that victory in such sour, downcast faces? Listen, I think it's because some of us are still kind of like Lazarus, to be honest. When he, first came, you know, when, when he first came out of the tomb, he's still wrapped up. Listen, a lot of us are walking today. We are saved today at the command of Jesus. We've resurrected at the command of Jesus, but we're still wearing the old grave clothes. Things of death, things of the past that bind us. Things that are holding us down. Baggage and mess of death from our former lives. Maybe that's you this morning, you Sometimes when I see this in the life of Christians, I want to look at them and just say, you know what? Um, bind him or her from that mess. Let him or her go. But beloved, I, I can't do that for you, friend. I can't do that for you necessarily. That's something only Jesus can do. Beloved, it is our responsibility and it is up to us to embrace the realities that you are no longer dead, but alive. Friend, live that resurrection life out in this world. Believe that with all your being, that Christ has made you alive with him and you are seated beside him. Agree with him today, that God, now, today, I'm going to live that way as someone free, someone new. Take the, maybe you just need to go to a prayer minister during the Eucharist this morning and ask them to pray with you to help take the grave clothes off of whatever it is from the past baggage or your sinful life or whatever's going on that you need freedom from this morning. You know, some of us, I'm afraid, have gotten really comfortable with our dead way of life. I pray this morning that God make us uncomfortable in those ways of death. You were dead, but now God has made us alive in Jesus. But then lest if we get the big head about these amazing privileges from God, Paul reminds us that these privileges we have in Christ are not because of us. Read with me verses 8 and 9 again. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Beloved, God knows our human nature well. If there was some man-made way to God... If there was a, other than Jesus, if there was a way we could bottle up salvation through natural human faculties or some process, we would. Like everything else in life, we would abuse it, mess it up in our own selfishness and pride. We would attempt to package, market, and sell God to people on our terms and then brag about it to our friends. <laughs> you know, something, yes, yes, this is the path to God. It can be yours for five easy payments of nineteen ninety five plus shipping and handling. I mean, just admit it. We, 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 in order of ourselves, if we thought we could get a hold of the process, we would. You can see that on some of the wealth and health prosperity gospel preachers that are out there today. Friend, listen, you can't buy salvation. You can't earn it. You can't do enough. You and I can't be good enough. We cannot clean ourselves up enough. We cannot do anything really to get saved, so to speak. You're not born with it. It's not Maybelline, you know. You can't think your way to God. 
No, see, God in his sheer unmerited absolute grace decided to save you, save me, and give us the faith needed to believe in Jesus. Being able, listen, being made alive, being made alive in Jesus is a gift. Being able to believe in Jesus, the faith that you have is a gift of God. Beloved, you were dead. I was dead. But God has made us alive in Jesus. Let us embrace that. Let us hold on to it. Let us say it over and over in, my, in our minds if we have to this week, throughout the week. God, I was dead, but thank you, God. Because of Jesus, you have made me alive. Now teach me what that means and help me live that out. Beloved, first, we learned what we were. We were dead. Secondly, we know where we are today. We are alive in Jesus. And then thirdly, we learn what, we'll, what we will be. What we will be. What is that? Well, you were created for good works. Verse 10, read with me, please. Paul continues. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right. Now, in our setting and a lot of good reformed thinking and a lot of those type of situations, you know, whenever we hear the word works in church, for whatever reasons, a lot of us just kind of break out into hives. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because we've been taught for years, you're saved by faith, not by what? Okay, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Paul says, though, we are called to good works here. What is he getting at? Well, first, we must understand that work is not what we do, but work is what God does. Say, what do you mean? Well, think about it. God created the world, that was his work. God created us. That was his work. God has recreated us in Christ Jesus. That, Paul just told us, that's his work. That's his doing. We are God's workmanship. That's his work. And because we have been recreated in Christ Jesus by God, Paul tells us that there are good works in the world that God has prepared for us to go and do. What are those works? Listen, God desires to accomplish his work in the world in and through you in this world to recreate and redeem the world. In other words, as a follower of Christ, and we're just gonna stick with one particular situation this morning, as a follower of Christ, your vocation in the world, your job, if you will, your vocation, your calling in the world, whether it's a stay-at-home mom, doctor, lawyer, teacher, whatever it is you do, listen, all of that is really not about you. Ultimately, you are no longer an employee. When you come to Christ, you're no longer an employee of such and such company. Ultimately, you work for God who wants to work in and in the world through you in order to redeem and recreate the area he has called you to in life. You know, there's two distortions of work of this type thing. Like I said, there's multiple directions we could go with this. We're just going to stick with work because I think that's where 99% of us are at. There are two distortions of work, though, that creep into the church all the time among, among Christians. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his book, and he says that there's this distortion. Uh-oh. The secularist distortion. What is, or excuse me, there's two. There's the secularist distortion. And then there's the pietist distortion, okay? Two distortion. 
The secularist distortion, those are people who romanticize work. Say, what do you mean? Well, this is when work is your path to significance in this world. It's when we do what we do so we can become well-known, to make a lot of cash, to make a contribution to the world, to glamorize oneself. The goal is usually in terms of payoff of salary, stock options, retirement, recognition, prominence, job satisfaction, and extended influence, personal importance, and fulfilled potential. The secularist mindset, conscious of it or not, really sees work as a way to become godlike in this world without really having to deal with God. Beloved, the way we Christians know we're operating like a secularist in the world is when A, we're not dealing with God through or and B, we're ignoring the rhythms of God's original created order as set forth in Genesis 1 of 2. You say, what do you mean God's original created order? Genesis 1 and 2. Six days of work, one day of rest. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're operating at a frantic frenzy with no time for a Sabbath, no time for a vacation, and you're not dealing with God through your work, then you're probably worshiping your work instead of letting your work be an act of worship. So that's the secularist distortion. Also, there's a distortion amongst Christians. Um, they, they kinda, it kind of goes this way. They, they get in our, or we get it in our heads that we believe that religious work, like works of prayers, works of worship and witness, or the work or the calling of a pastor or a priest or a preacher or a missionary or a monk are more holy than other work and occupations. That's known as a pietist distortion of work. The problem with that is such notions fail to acknowledge that Jesus himself was a carpenter by trade. Jesus talked with ordinary fishermen and tax collectors, prostitutes and farmers. And in fact, if you really take an honest look at the gospel, you'll see that the largest part of the works of Christ didn't occur in the temple, didn't occur in religious places. They occurred in conversations in, uh, conversations in the secular setting usually. And that's usually where conversions occurred. So you have a secularist mindset. You also have a pietist distortion or mindset. But we've got to ask this question. But, okay, so why does then God call us to work? How do we get this right? Listen, God first worked in the world when he created the cosmos and he called it good. Beloved, you have been recreated in Christ Jesus. And God calls us now to come participate and the redemption of his world by doing good works well. Work done well and good, as God called it in Genesis, simply points back to the creator God, and it gives him glory. You say, what do you mean? Well, think about it. Like last night, um, I don't know if some of you saw it, there were some planets that uh, the news and some other places had talked about were going to be very, very visible in the Western Hemisphere last night. And, uh, you know, I go and, and, and I take my daughter outside, go get her up actually out of bed. It's like, come here, you want to see this. It's right above the moon. And there's just three or four or two planets in particular just glowing as bright as these lights. I mean, they're really, really close. And after I laid back down, you know, the question always comes when I see something spectacular like that, bigger and farther away. I don't know how many light years all this stuff is and all of that. It's not kind of my realm see something so spectacular, so beautiful, and so wonderful, and say, how did that get there? 
principle of first calls tells me that it got there somehow. For me, it's God. It points. See, when the, and then likewise, when the world sees good work done, and that's, well, that was God's work. That's God's handiwork in the world. It points back to him. It's got that first cause. I've got to look back. Where is that happening? Where, what, God, what, what is this? It's so beautiful. It's so spectacular. I'm so amazed by it. How did that get there? God. But then when the world sees good work done well in this world, friend, when they see work done ethically, orderly and good. You know what? The world takes notice of that and usually will ask the question, how did this happen? How did this come about? It's at that point as Christians, I guess we could pat ourselves on the back, but ultimately we have to say it was God. It was God. This past week, a couple weeks ago, I spent a little bit of time with a gentleman that by the world's standards, he's very successful by the looks of things, he's incredibly successful. Not three sentences into the conversation, I didn't tell the man at that time, he didn't know I was a priest or, or pastor or anything of the sorts. He said, take a look around all this. He said, you know what? I didn't do any of this. It was all God. It's all up to him. I had nothing to do with any of this. In fact, he said, if it had been up to me, I would have probably been you know, a, bro- a broke, busted man a very, very long time ago. He's like, God's done it all. God's blessed me. And all I've tried to do is just be faithful and obedient to him all along the way. That, when people come and ask me, how do you do this? This is it. Just be faithful and obedient to what the Lord wants you to do in the moment. This man's work is pointing back to God. Work done well to the glory of God is almost like a sacrament, if you will, in this world. It's a grace that's pointing to something else. Friends, this morning, join God in his redemptive acts by going to work in the world out there to the glory of God this week. That's what Jesus did. Find a Genesis rhythm to your work week, a seven to one or a six to one ratio, six days of work, one day of rest. Take the Sabbath to spend time with your family. God rested, so should you. Beloved, redeem whatever is at hand in your calling, your vocation, your job and career, whether it's changing a diaper, helping a child with their addition or helping a corporation recover from massive accounting blunders. Do it redemptively. For friends, you have been created for good works to participate in God's redeeming of the world. Beloved, go and overcome evil. Go and overcome those places of decay and death and chaos with truth, with what is good, with order, and with the love and grace of Jesus. Those are the good works that Paul call us to. Beloved, there are three statements of facts. What we were, we were dead in sin. What you are today, God has made you alive. And then what you are to be doing good works, glorifying your Father in heaven. Let us go forth to love and serve the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.